Hi everyone, my name is Peter Ozleski. I'm from the Diversity, Equity and Inclusion team here at Deakin. Before we begin this podcast, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Wadawurrung people of the Kulin Nation, on whose country our Geelong campus, where I am located today, is located. We pay our respects to the traditional elders past, present and emerging leaders, and thank First Nations people for their care and custodianship of the land. As I said, um, I'd like to welcome you all to this episode of our Respect Belong Thrive podcast today. As I mentioned, I'm Peter Ozleski. I'm the Senior Manager of Programs and Partnerships here in the Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Division at Deakin. I'll be your host today as we welcome our interviewee, Hanan Amin. So Hanan is a training and development consultant and has been delivering family violence training for over two and a half years at Good Shepherd. Hanan has a background in social work and has worked in refugee settlements, employment services, and as a community services trainer. She has also worked in the financial hardship and well-being space, including in the energy sector and developing financial literacy education resources at ASIC and for a range of vulnerable customers. Hanan currently designs and delivers financial hardship, family violence, and financial well-being training to a range of organizations. And we've been lucky enough at Deakin to actually have some of the training that Hanan and her team deliver. So welcome again, Hanan. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I wonder if we could just open with a question around if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and your role at Good Shepherd. Sure. So I'm the training and development consultant. So I deliver kind of three main areas of training, one being family violence awareness and response training, and that's delivered uh, alongside a family violence practitioner from Good Shepherd. I also design and deliver, as you've mentioned, financial hardship training or financial vulnerability training. And then we have financial well-being training for, you know, looking at economic security, planning for the future these types of sort of topics, depending what the organization wants. So we generally liaise with or work with external organizations and it's a fee-for-service and we deliver very bespoke training. So we will talk to the organization and just um, see what they need and and work out their requirements and those in a training or workshop or, you know, seminar type delivery. And yeah, I've been here for two and a half years and looking forward to, you know, continuing what I do. Fantastic. Thanks, Anand. I think it's interesting because I suppose in the areas that you work in, there's a lot of crossover, isn't there? Obviously, we'll be predominantly talking about financial inclusion today, but there's no doubt crossover with domestic and family violence and a lot of other types of hardship and disadvantage in the community. I guess one of my other questions would be, what are some of the main challenges do you think that the community faces in terms of financial inclusion at the moment? Yes, there's definitely crossover in in the work, as you've mentioned, absolutely. And in terms of the main challenges, so I can talk about the two sectors. So I guess the challenges that the Good Shepherd clients are facing. So the, you know, our frontline staff and the service delivery team obviously are liaising and coming across lots of issues. So I'll talk about that first. And then maybe I can look about some of the issues that the training or we face or see in the training space. So in terms of the clients at Good Shepherd. So lots of hardship um, in terms of, you know, being an issue, cost of living being an issue, obviously causing huge distress. All this is happening where there's no really increase in payments, although I think we've just had a very tiny increase just being announced. And, you know, there is, I'm not sure if you've come across the Food Bank Hunger Report 2022, Mm. but there's a great quote in there. And I think it kind of sums up nicely that same bills, same groceries, same income, the only thing that has changed is prices has gone up, which is, you know, there's definitely an increase in demand, obviously, in services. And if you talk about food bank particularly, I'm sure you've heard about the increase there. And, you know, add to that the mix of compounding effects of, you know, nat- natural disasters, COVID, 
And then the limited budget. So, you know, one of our clients, you know, has shared once that they have a $40 allowance for petrol, for example. Um, and so if the petrol increases in price, the $40 doesn't change. It's still $40. So obviously they're going to get less. And if you talk about rural and regional areas as well, then you're getting into a bit more complexity with lack of transport thing. You know, sometimes things are closed in the proximity, so they have to travel further. So then you're, you know, there's just, you can you can sort of see the, 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 the challenges here. So we've got the same amount of money trying to go further. Mm. And, you know, rent is a huge issue, as you'd appreciate. And I think we're hearing private rental market is a huge issue at the moment. And then you've got the family violence implications for individuals who have got you know, like facing financial well-being issues. So they're not really confined to a period of time. Sometimes it can take years to resolve those issues. So that's in terms of the Good Shepherd clients. Um, am I good to go on to the next Yeah, one? absolutely. I think, it's, I think it's just to kind of touch on the couple of the points you raised there. I think we're hearing it from our students as well at Deakin. I think one of the most interesting things I've heard, and I think it might've come from the food bank CEO, was that particularly in the last year or two, there is a significant amount of the population that have never had to access support services of that nature before that are having to access it. So it's not only the people that are, I guess, structurally disadvantaged and have been accessing those services for many years. There's people that are working full-time jobs, maybe a couple of full-time jobs, and they're still having to access those ranges of support services, which I don't think in a lot of the mainstream media gets covered that it's, it's, we all hear about interest rates, but it's not just interest rates, it's that the rising cost of absolutely everything. And students, it's no different. We've got students who are studying full-time and working full-time and still not able to make ends meet. And that's a very compounding and confounding effect on mental health and many other things as well. Um, I guess the second part of your answer, Hanan, did you want to talk us through a little bit about some of the organizations you work with and some of the insights that they've been able to provide as well? Yeah, absolutely. So we, you know, we work with a range of sectors, financial services, we've got some uh, educational sort of services like Deacon and insurance and, and the like, um, and certainly the water utilities specifically as well. Um, so the energy sector and the water. And, you know, we're, we're sort of talking about the same cohort. So they, even though they're cheaper clients, they are sometimes clients of broader organisations. And so exact same issues. And add to that, then those who are potentially having mortgages and then the mortgage stress that they've got at the moment and distress. And with COVID, initially, we saw lots of new cohorts of, of clients. So I think we've mentioned or slightly alluded to this earlier that clients who were ne have never, ever accessed a you know, support service in, you know, previously never needed to. Obviously, when COVID hit, there was lots of changes and circumstances. So then we had this new, new cohort of clients, if you like, or community who were wanting or needing support, but probably didn't even know how to ask for it. There was that. There was also the, the work, um, obviously work being impacted, the casual work specifically in certain sectors, um, you know, new migrants and, you know, women were definitely very impacted. Safe and Equal have this fact sheet. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it talks about, you know, how more women than men lost jobs during COVID. Um, more women than men had um, had their income drastically reduced and their hours, you know, reduced as well. Women sh then shouldered a huge disproportionate sort of burden of the unpaid, you know, voluntary work as well that, that they do. So add to that, all of that, and then if the natural disasters are happening, which some of them have occurred, sadly, in, in, in the past sort of, you know, few months or year. So there's major challenges um, happening for everybody, depending on not even, you know, not, not just with shepherd clients, but these are people who are everyone. Everyone is doing it tough at the moment, irrespective of really of the level of income that you have. Absolutely. 
we'll talk about some of the workshops that you run at Good Shepherd and the key learnings from those workshops as part of this discussion. But I might jump to another question around, given you've spoken about obviously the increasing levels of financial distress across Australian households, and I think the way that there's particular cohorts in society, and you've called out women specifically, and maybe women from migrant or diverse backgrounds in particular, I guess that kind of leads me to think about a question around financial abuse and its prevalence in society. That's, I think, financial abuse and financial disadvantage, particularly for women, pervades in a number of different ways. You've mentioned about an increased share of voluntary or unpaid work. Obviously, there is potential career breaks that women have to take if they're choosing to have children. Mm -hmm. And then you've also got the structural inequity of uh, reduced super accounts. If they're not working, then they have reduced um, retirement income in the future. Did you want to um, touch on, Hanan, some of the key drivers or key points around financial mm. abuse and its prevalence in society? Yes, um, happy to do that. So if we look at the Combank or CBA has uh, the next chapter sort of base and they've got this great infographic and it talks about it when they did sort of community attitude surveys and I think it was over 10,000 Australians at the time. It was uh, 2020 from my memory. So you know, one of the great things they said was that almost 40% of adequate population have experienced or know someone who has experienced financial abuse. That's quite huge numbers. And so thinking about obviously financial abuse, it takes, you know, different forms um, and it is a form of family violence under the acts and the legislation. So it's really, and, and like the other thing they highlighted was that there was severe, um, there was a severe lack of actually understanding of what financial abuse even is. And so some people may even be experiencing it and aren't aware that they're actually mm. experiencing it. So it can take like various forms, like we've said, and I think you've kind of mentioned about super, but certainly during COVID, what the family violence practitioners were finding was people's superannuation accounts were accessed without their knowledge, you know, um, so that was one thing that was certainly happening. Obviously, people taking out loans without people's consent or knowledge. Now, you know, with some ease of access to some loans, people are take, being forced to take out multiple loans. Again, no consent. The court system itself, it can sort of be a bit... I won't talk about the court, but, you know, the court system itself can be problematic. Um, it has not, its own... The court system has mm, its own elements of structural inequity as well, doesn't it? Yes, definitely. Um, you know, so then there's also not letting people work, obviously withholding money. So it can look at, you know, different... Um, it can look different for different people. And so it's it's definitely prevalent. But the, the good thing is that there is support services and, and there is um, something people can do. And I think the banks um, are beginning to be, you know, looking at this issue a bit more and looking at certain um, patterns and systems and, and have putting these things in place. So it's, it's good. And, and the other thing is at Good Shepherd, it's a, you know, we have the financial independence hub. And so this is a free confidential ongoing service for people who have, have experienced financial abuse. And it's going to hopefully they get a coach and they work with them to feel more confident with their managing their money and planning for the future. People can definitely reach out to that if people want it. It's, you can actually email and you can you can call, you know, one 150 and it's fih at goodship.org.au and you can actually email to book an appointment. So that's, you know, one aspect. Obviously, there's 1-800-RESPECT that people are should hopefully are aware of now. It's a family violence um, national number that people can reach out if they are experiencing any type of family violence. 
Fantastic. Thanks, Sanan, for that information. And I'm sure that there would be members of the Deacon community that have experienced financial abuse or maybe even accessing those services. And I think particularly working in the student equity part of the university like we do, one thing we are very cognizant of is that there is significant levels of financial distress and possibly financial abuse occurring with our students and in our student community. And as an organization, we want to enable our frontline staff. So the people who are interacting with our students and our staff on a day-to-day basis, the skills and knowledge to be able to support students should they disclose um, issues around financial distress or financial abuse, but also to recognize the signs that may come up if they're interacting with a student on a day-to-day basis, if they're talking to them around their course enrollment or um, a student were to come to one of our student central hubs and um, talk about their situation. And so I suppose um, one thing we started to do uh, in recent years was to partner with Good Shepherd and your team to organize workshops and financial training and capacity building for our staff. Did you want to talk a little bit about those workshops that you run with your team, Hanan? Sure, absolutely. So, um, like you've mentioned, we we run financial hardship, so training as we call it, and then it looks at, you know, recognizing sort of the signs, particularly when they're not overt, you know, people generally because of shame and stigma and all sorts of um, things and many issues may not will not come out and say I'm experiencing financial difficulty it will be said in many other ways and you know we try in the training we look at what are these things that people say and do rather not not say but actually do or statements they make that very much can indicate that someone's experiencing financial difficulty how to respond to that empathetically and you know that empathy definitely cannot be scripted it's something that has to come from inside uh, of really trying to connect with the person and we talk about making the respectful referrals, which is really important because obviously everyone's role is limited. Um, we can't be everything to everybody. And certainly your staff um, and staff and other organizations are not counselors. And so it's best to let the person know about the support that's available, particularly when it's beyond the realm of what the call is about. And so that's what we do. We, we sort of encourage people to make respectful referrals, let them know about the support services that are available for uh, their customer or client base, depending on, you know, what what kind of issues are coming through and what they're seeing. So that's in terms of the financial hardship space. So we definitely do that. In terms of family violence, we look at, again, awareness and response, because what we're trying to ultimately do is change the current story of what's, you know, and change this narrative and make things better for everyone impacted and this is going to take a whole of society approach. It cannot happen at, you know, one workshop, but we're hoping one workshop, you know, if 20 people means they could then potentially have 20 conversations with people in their lives. And then, you know, we just like to think that that keeps going. And in our family violence workshops, which we deliver in bookend style predominantly, so we have a an hour initially at the beginning of the week, then people go away and do an online module and we come back together at the end of the week to then sort of have case studies and, and cement the learning and consolidate it. And we ask people to make commitments at the end of the session to sort of, you know, tell us what they're going to do to hopefully make things better and change. And it's heartwarming when we hear things like, I'm going to call things out. I'm going to think about how I talk to my children. I'm going to check up on someone. I'm going to be more curious, whatever it is. The commitments are, you know, wonderful. And it's great to see that we are people are wanting, you know, to to sort of hop on the journey and try to change this current narrative. The other form of training I deliver is the financial well-being space. And this is where we've worked with organisations to look at what are sort of the issues that they want staff to talk about. So there was one where we 
delivered um, workshops about, you know, early sort of career, you know, when you're coming into the workforce, what are you wanting to look at? What are you needing? The other one was about retirement. So as we we're approaching retirement, what are, we, what are the things that we might want to look at and consider? And really, it's never financial advice because we are not financial advisors. It's about, again, guidance, you know, and we look at great resources that are out there and pointing people in the right direction. And so they're generally around including sort of developing programs in the future, um, future planning, economic security, and then financial resources and supports. At times, and what we are trying to encourage people as well is to think about not just the initial training, but we have you know, post-implementation workshops where we can then sort of get people to um, record or keep track of what's what's happened after training. What are the, you know, areas that they might want some extra support or additional support, or is there something that they, they want more from us? And then we can come back and, and deliver that if, if required. Absolutely. And we've had some really good feedback from our staff. I think along those lines that you've talked about, it's actually that having the information and having the knowledge and awareness is powerful in and of itself particularly for our staff, as I mentioned, who are supporting students, but also staff with their own families in their own lives and their peers at work. As we've sort of touched on a number of times, it's not everybody, regardless of their background, regardless of their job, can be affected by financial distress at a given time. It's not necessarily certain corners of society. I I really like what you said around that financial well-being for people at different stages of their career, because I know that we hear it quite a lot, particularly from young staff at Deakin. People aren't thinking about things like superannuation when they're getting their first graduate job, but setting up some of those practices and making sure that you're aware of the tools that are available to you can be really powerful at that stage of early career as you set yourself up for the future. I'm interested in what some of the learnings that you hear from people that go through those workshops are and maybe what surprised you from some of the feedback that you've got. The surprises um the, the amount of people or really sort of the lack of knowledge, people sometimes do not know about certain services or support that's out there. And I think that it's surprising because, you know, the, the services are there. It's great. You know, once people know about them, then they can access them. So I think this, one of the surprising things is people not really knowing about what exists out there to support them. There's also there's some assumptions about people doing it tough. And I think you've just alluded to this a little bit earlier about who exactly can be doing it tough. But we know that people, even with high income, can at times be doing it tough and can be impacted depending on what's happening in their circumstances. And there was this, you know, during COVID, and I I hate to bring up some (laughs) terrible times, but, um, you know, people kept saying, oh, we're all in the same boat. We're all in this together. So really, we're we're not in the same boat. We were all in the same storm, but we were differently, you know, on on different boats. Some of us had yachts, some of us had oars. And so- I like that analogy. Mm, and I can't say I can't take credit for it, but there is there was an illustration at the time people were talking about, you know, we, we cannot be in the same boat because depending obviously what's, you know, the circumstances that you were in, and it could be as simple as what house you lived in could sometimes have impacted whether you're staying there, what staying inside looked like for those of us who are in lockdown quite, you know, long periods of time. And so there was, um, yeah, the assumption about people doing it tough. And that's why there was a bit of a surprise when this new cohort that I spoke about sort of started coming to the to the front because life was was tough and they needed support it was also the shame of of people not wanting to tell their story and it's it's hard for people and this is why we always say you know it's it's very courageous if someone comes out and says to you I am in distress I am in difficulty in whatever capacity and way they say it this is bravery um you know and it takes a lot for people to actually tell you because generally people don't say because they're 
feeling quite ashamed and embarrassed about what's going on for them. And so it's, it's important to be, you know, the learnings for people is to be cognizant about just the connection that you can make with someone. And, and like we were saying, picking out without having the person actually verbally tell you, I am experiencing difficulty and difficulty, you know, put whatever words and whatever type of difficulty it is. And then the other type of learnings that sometimes surprises is that people will say someone else needs it more than I do. And this is why they don't seek support and and get help. That's another reason. And money stories, this is something we talk about specifically in the financial wellbeing space, but the money stories, so people get surprised about how much they've retained uh, and what how they perceive money has come from their childhood story with how their parents or their carers or their givers spoke and dealt with money is, you know, some of it obviously sitting with them and, and they didn't realise that's, that's where it had come from. So that's been an interesting exercise that we do as well. Absolutely. I think there's really interesting parallels to draw between what you're talking about in terms of disclosure of people being in financial distress and mental health and wellbeing. I think obviously it's a really good thing that in, I would say recent years, and it probably has been recent years, that people are more comfortable discussing their own mental health and mental health battles. And I think it is something that similarly to financial matters, maybe the previous generation or previous generations liked or felt the need to keep that below the surface and something that people should manage individually and then it's your problem. And I think it's fantastic. It's unearthed a massive problem in our community, both on the mental health and financial distress side, but I think it's good that people are talking about it and being encouraged to talk about it or to seek support. And obviously they're very interrelated subjects too, because one can affect the other very significantly and often does. But it is interesting to hear that as outcomes from the workshops. Um, and I suppose that's a benefit as well, that people can hear from other people that it's a it's a shared problem and that it's not just mm. you. So we're really proud that Deacon's actually a member of the Financial Inclusion Action Plan program that Good Shepherd uh, leads across Australia. We were one of the founding members of the place-based Geelong Financial Inclusion Action Plan a number of years mm. ago, and we continue to be part of that program today. For those listening to this that are not aware of it, and Hanan will probably provide some more information, but essentially it was a a group of organizations in Geelong, large organizations of which Deakin was lucky enough to be one, to come together and collaborate on some shared actions to be able to progress specific issues that are somewhat unique to the Geelong region. They're often issues that might be shared with other parts of Australia, but having a really Geelong focus and saying, what can we do as a series of large organizations to um, support the community with the resources that we each have? We're really proud to be part of the program. And I suppose from your perspective, Hanan and Good Shepherd, would you like to go into a little bit more detail about maybe how the Financial Inclusion Action Plan came about or what is it from your perspective? Sure. Or FIAP is, you know, or Financial Inclusion Action Plan as um, is the longer, the longer way to say it. But FIAP um, was really launched in 2016, actually, and it was a call to action. And so in 2014, I'll give you a bit of background. The, the Australian government made a commitment to the G20 summit to develop a national financial inclusion action plan. So a FIAP to advance the UN's uh, sustainable development goals. And so in response, then the Department of Social Services commissioned Good Shepherd in collaboration with EY and the Centre for Social impact to develop the FIAP program and enable organizations from across 
all sectors to promote financial inclusion and resilience in Australia. And so by taking action, the FIAP members then contributed to 12 of the 17 sustainable development goals, particularly those associated with reducing inequalities and enabling inclusive economic growth. Today, though, as you've mentioned, there's the national and the place-based network and with over 50 organisations who've made kind of public commitments to take really strategic and practical actions that will improve the financial well-being of their customers, employers, business and community partners. So really it's practical actions that organisations can undertake to improve the financial or improve financial inclusion. And there's usually measurable actions that are taken across, you know, the staff, the customers, the supply chain, the community. And so at the core, really, FIAP is a commitment made by organisations and it can be done across a number number of different categories. So it can be looking at the products and services, for example, it can be looking at financial capability, it can be looking at understanding financial vulnerability or economic security. Um, So it might be like removing barriers to provide opportunities for economic security and so on. So it's it's a great program and it's fabulous that Deakin is a part and we um, encourage and would love more um, members, but this is, you know, the the main crux of it. And so the uh, place-based is Geelong and we actually have a North Adelaide one as well. I think one of the one of the key things that I found really useful. So a lot of the actions that Deacon has pursued as part of the initial plan and what we're going to be looking at going forward is clearly we're as we're universities trying to support our students who are in financial distress. I think one of the things that I found really useful though is the network of people that you meet through the diverse organizations that work. They might be large organizations like Work WorkSafe or like ourselves or like the council or um, even Bar and Water, but there's also some smaller organizations involved that have really interesting practice we've been able to share. There's some schools in the regions through St. Joseph's and Sacred Heart that Deacon's been able to partner with as a result of connections made through there. And I think that's something that is really fantastic because you often don't get to collaborate through a shared interest like something like the FIAP Enable. So that's really fantastic. So the next question and probably last question I'm going to ask Anand is, given we're talking about the Financial Inclusion Action Plan, I guess a bit of a call to action. Why is it important for organizations to engage with something like a FIAP, a Financial Inclusion Action Plan? Thanks. So as you already mentioned, it's that connection with other organisations that may not have happened had it not been for that sort of, you know, group coming together and members coming together. So definitely an opportunity to learn from other organisations who are doing great things in this space uh, and potentially having, you know, partnerships yourselves. Really, it, it's kind of good for customers, good for community, good for business, it's good for everybody. You're getting support from Good Shepherd staff to, you know, look at your action plan and guidance, depending what it is in the organization, organization is trying to achieve. And obviously, you know, we're looking at financial well-being as part of our overall well-being. As we've said, your mental health is impacted because of money and money can impact your mental health. And like, there's a, a bit of a cycle and a definite link there. So it's really important to have that at the forefront of you know organizations and and think about because their staff are impacted so I know Deakin's more looking at their students sort of as their cohorts but there's you know these students are going to other workplaces and the workplaces need to be mindful of what's going on not only for students but for you know the general population so we're learning from other organizations we're identifying future actions like I said you've got the you know good shepherd knowledge and expertise in the financial inclusion space and you know we've been doing this work for quite some time you do get obviously a discount as a FIAP member for training on training packages so there's a bit of a discount there and like I said if you're a place-based or you know in the place-based FIAPs then you've got um, opportunity to work so great program for anybody any organization wanting to come on board and we are, are grateful that Deacon's been part of that journey. Fantastic 
Look, thanks so much, Anand, for being on today and having a chat to us. We really appreciate your insights and uh, the discussion around some of the drivers of financial distress, this current situation in Australian society regarding financial well-being, and, and also obviously some practical information about what we can do at Deakin and also what other organisations can do around how to support their staff and clients. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciated it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I just wanted to quickly, for any listeners to the podcast, um, given we were discussing some topics around family violence and around financial well-being, if any of the people that were listening to this today found any of the content that we were discussing in this podcast distressing, we do encourage you to seek support through Deacon Safety Community Services on 9244-3734. They're available on Monday to Friday through 9am to 4pm. And as Hanan mentioned earlier in the podcast, there's also 1-800-RESPECT if you're a staff member or you can contact our employee wellbeing services on 1-300-687-327. Once again, thank you to Hanan for joining us today. Um, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. And if you would like to hear from some of our other colleagues, students and community partners, you can browse our previous recordings of the Respect for Long Thrive podcast. This episode is sponsored by the Community Bank at Deakin University, which provides grants for community projects, events, and initiatives. To find out more, click the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening.